0: 2022. It's here with a bang. We've dragged in our favorite Canadian out of the cold. Welcome back, Brent. Hello, everyone. And Chris,
1: as always, how are you doing? Happy New Year, sir. Hey, you know what? I want to say thank you to uh, the team that stepped in for the holiday 3D printing episode. That was a lot of fun. And now I mean, it feels like I haven't done this forever. Like, yeah, I who done are a, you again? A, a what is, what, what yeah. is this
0: thing in front of my face?
1: Well, I thought maybe if I brought Brent with me, I'd be accepted back. Maybe. We'll Did see. It work? The jury is still out <laughs> on that one. It always works with Alex. <laughs> 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 the quickest way to Alex's heart is through a Brent. Oh.
0: It's true. Also, uh video games, you know, my favorite game of all time, I think, is probably Factorio, but I potentially have a new one which is vying for a top spot at the moment. It's called Anno eighteen hundred. Have either of you played this game?
2: Oh, uh, this is the first I hear of it.
0: Yeah, same. What kind of game is this? It's a city builder where you manage, like, supply chains and that kind of thing. Um, oh, it sounds like it's up your alley. You're pretty much playing as the East India Trading Company, minus the slavery part, so that's kind of nice. But yeah, you just trade goods back and forth and build cities, and yeah, it's it's, it's a fun, relaxing single-player game. When was this
2: released, and how'd you hear about? it?
0: Uh, ages ago. I don't know when it was released exactly, but uh, I think I heard about it first when... Linus of uh, tech tip fame mentioned it on one of his videos, and I thought, oh, I'll go and check it out, and downloaded a demo and liked it, so I
1: bought it. It's kind of great when you discover a game that's been out for a while, so that means it's got a couple of patches under its belt, you can find stuff online, there's a community, it's sort of a sweet spot. You know, you know, a game doesn't have to be cutting-edge brand new for for it to be enjoyable.
0: Absolutely not. Speaking of stuff that's no longer cutting edge and brand new, I thought I'd just do a quick bit of follow-up on the uh, Linux Unplug predictions episode. Um, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make the recording of this year's predictions episode itself, but I thought I'd follow up on the prediction I made last year about 20 terabyte hard drives uh, being available, I think, for 250 bucks at Best Buy. That didn't quite pan out. No, it didn't quite, did it? No. I mean, was, there was a few shenanigans going on that kind of scuppered my my plans. First of all, supply chain. Obviously, we all know at this point what's going on with the supply chain. But second of all was Chia. We had a hard drive mining crypto coin come out of the woodwork.
1: Yeah, there's just no way with all that was going on that was going to happen. You think maybe you got a better shot this year? No, but I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> I mean, I was
0: trying to, you know, with this Anno 1800 game, I've got a, a 1080 Ti graphics card, which I've had for several years now, uh, which was actually incidentally paid for originally by Bitcoin mining four years ago. And now with this Anno 1800 game, I've been looking for a new GPU and I was looking, you know, just uh, to see what was out there. The cheapest 3080 that I could find was on Facebook Marketplace near me for $1,800. <laughs> What is going on with that?
2: <laughs> Ridiculous.
1: Yeah, we've been building a new replacement server here. And the the number one cost, because the audience has been so awesome by providing the, the main rigs, has been storage. And the, just a limited amount of storage. So I had to buy a batch of 2 terabytes and a batch of 4 terabytes. I wanted all 4 terabytes, obviously. And I had to buy them all used, which I'm not super comfortable with. Um, but it's going to be in a in a raid array, so hopefully, if one or two pops, we'll be all right. But they're all used discs, and you know we paid a fair amount for them, even buying in the after you know whatever you call it the lightly loved market, I assume, because they're enterprise drives. So I hope, I hope they last. I've just
2: recently learnt about this whole hard drive used market. Is this Alex? You think something worth even considering? I mean, how cheap are we talking? A uh,
0: 14 terabyte so here, here's my reference point a 14 terabyte easy store that i can shuck from best buy i think i picked one up before christmas for about 190 200 something like that
1: i think it's also what is your risk tolerance and do you have a setup that can tolerate one or two drives at least failing yeah that makes
2: sense so the new server do we keep that in mind?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we can we can sustain a couple disks failing. I think in total, it, we're okay until three fi- fail simultaneously. Um, and I normally wouldn't think that's likely, except for these are probably all originally from the same manufacturing batch. They're all the same exact hard drive, the same exact model, all bought at the same exact time. <laughs> I thought that was a rule not to do that.
0: I'm pretty sure there's a a rule against that, like the bathtub curve or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, beggars are definitely not choosers, and in this case, that's what we got. Have you considered calling your buddy
0: Alex over here and shipping him a couple of hard drives, and then you could use some of his basement
1: space as a off-site backup? Maybe
0: we could do that. That'd be a fun project.
1: Now, I know this is a lot of power, but what about a full server, potentially? Why? Well, because I think I might have one that I'm going to totally sync. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and, I mean, <laughs> but why? I you know,
2: think he has more servers than hard drive space.
1: You're pretty offsite, you know. That's a good offsite backup, you know, in terms of offsite backups go.
2: One in the east, one in mean, the west. Yeah. If
1: a if a nuke hit DC, would it come out as far
0: as Raleigh? Probably. I don't know. I mean, if that happens, I think I probably got bigger problems. Really. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You're on the west coast. I don't think the the
1: fallout would make it quite that far.
0: I'm joking, of course. There'd be bigger problems than that.
1: There's one or two mountains between us, I suppose. A Maybe couple. I'll do all right. And then really, life should just go on as normal. There would be no other repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if, if the uh, federal government disappeared tomorrow, I don't think anybody would be too upset, do you? No, I'd I just vote with blockchain, I think. That's what would happen. Uh-oh. So was that your prediction? Was it 200? with uh, What was it? I, I, I think I missed the prediction. A
0: 20 terabyte easy store for $250 or less. Okay. Okay.
2: Can I ask you what you think, Alex, your success rate might be? 0%. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. But he's doing it anyways. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was pretty
0: confident about it. But uh, I don't know. The way things are at the minute and you know chip shortages and all that kind of stuff, I'm not so sure anymore. But, you know, can't blame a guy for trying. No.
2: What about diminishing returns when it comes to hard drive? Like, I don't know. A- squeezing that much data into tiny like it's a physical space. Is there any terabyte is a terabyte. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is is there any physical limitation to how far this can go?
1: Oh, there's been a lot of innovations in that space, for better or
0: for worse, for sure. Yeah, they they do all sorts of shenanigans to to fit more bits and bytes and stuff onto a single platter. Um, you know, that's way beyond what I think about generally on on the regular. Uh, I think about how much space I can fit into a single drive slot and for for me in my backup server for example I've I've just built a new backup server that has five hot swap drive bays and so for me I want to be able to cram as many terabytes into those five slots as I can so trying to get the most terabyte per slot for me is is the name of the game
1: yep i totally agree so santa brought you a few gifts and some of them speak homekit and uh, this is a topic we've danced around on the show because we appreciate not everyone listening even cares about this kind of stuff. You've been prepping for this episode for years. Yeah. You know, honestly, before I gave Home Assistant a go, I gave HomeKit a go. Like, I just tried to do everything with HomeKit because there's, there's things I like about it. If you're not familiar, it's it's basically a software framework that Apple created that exists in the iOS ecosystem and now the Mac. And it allows for LAN based smart automation and device controls. And it's because it's LAN based, it's really quick. And because it's Apple, it's integrated into the OS and it's integrated into any of the Siri speaker devices and anything that you can invoke Siri on, you can control a HomeKit device with. So that it kind of opens it up to a pretty wide ecosystem. Even the Apple TV remote can be used to control HomeKit devices. And of course, Apple builds HomeKit automations into their Shortcuts app on the iPhone, so you can build automations in your smart home using the Shortcuts app, just if you really live in that ecosystem. But obviously, because it's Apple's ecosystem, it's a big sandbox, but it is absolutely a sandbox, and it does have walls.
0: So absolutely, I'm I'm already bumping up against those walls on, you know, day 10, ten or whatever of my... Uh ios transition you know i've i've been using android for the best part of a decade and figured i'd give the ios side a a proper college try this year so i'm i'm going to keep going with this phone i'm going to try and do a year we'll see how it goes i'm liking it so far for the most part there's a couple of things but uh, coming back to HomeKit, uh, what's really nice is how it's it's seamless right and when i pull down on my notification kind of control center thing up in the top right I get a button there called Home, which has some favorites within it. And and one of the things that came up right away without any configuration at all was my LG TV.
1: So I can just turn it on and off straight
0: from my phone. No need for a specific app.
1: Yeah, as you would expect, Apple is pretty good at what they do support. It works pretty well. Uh, And HomeKit itself seems to be fairly robust. They've open sourced uh, a lot of it. Uh, It uses encryption that seems to be pretty strong and they're promising broader integration with Matter as that develops they're one of the partners there. So there's some things to like about it and I think as we get into this I want to talk about how you can integrate it with Home Assistant. I don't know if you've tried that yet, Alex.
0: Not yet. I mean, you know that I have dozens of home automation devices around this house already. The only one that got picked up out of the box was my LG TV.
1: Okay, well so I think let's let's start here. I think where I want to take this is if you have family members listening that want some home automation they're not comfortable with Google or Amazon doing cloud control services and they're not interested in running something like home assistant or openhab or a smart things hub but they have iOS devices right this is a category of user that's perfect for this because they can really get a lot done uh here at the studio i use home i actually use automations with homekit to turn on and off the lights when i arrive and leave I don't actually do it directly on Home Assistant. It's triggering Home Assistant devices, which we'll talk about. But the automation's actually being triggered by shortcuts on my iPhone. Also, I use that same setup to use, to scan NFC tags to trigger automations. So there's some, there's some nice things you can get without having to run a whole back-end infrastructure. So what happens when Chris's iPhone isn't there? They have this concept of a hub. And it's either the Apple TV or an iPad that you're willing to leave on the LAN probably plugged in, um, or a, a HomePod, big or small, they can all act as a HomeKit hub. It becomes the primary orchestrator of your HomeKit network. And if you're comfortable with this, it also will act as the proxy to iCloud. So Apple establishes a secure connection between your iPhone and iCloud. So when you leave the house, you can pull down that control center and all your devices still work, all their status information still works. And when you trigger them, what's happening is a proxied request is being routed through iCloud to the HomeKit hub, which in my case is a HomePod, and then the HomePod is executing it locally on your LAN. Okay, that's, that's pretty legit. Like, that's similar to like, the Nebu Casa service, right? Right, and it's all encrypted between your HomeKit hub and your phone. So it's, Apple doesn't have the key to that. So that's also another they they are they they do have the ability to exchange it. So in theory, they could probably intercept it, but as far as where the encryption keys are held, it's on your iPhone or your iOS device. Could be the watch uh, and the HomeKit hub. So how do I add things that don't have HomeKit support to this
0: ecosystem? Can I do
1: that? I do it through Home Assistant, but we'll get there. I wanted to mention. Homebridge. Homebridge is really the way to do this right now for, you mentioned LG televisions. Before LG natively supported HomeKit, everyone was doing it with Homebridge and it was, you could run it like on a Raspberry Pi and it essentially, it'll talk their proprietary API, whatever protocol or service it might be. The bridge will talk that and then it'll translate it to HomeKit. So it'll just show up to your iPhone as a HomeKit device. But it's really the bridge making that representation, and so people were controlling LG televisions using this bridge, and LG got wind of it. and They thought, oh, well, maybe we should work with Apple and just build in the HomeKit support, and that's how that actually started. So I don't need the Home Bridge; that's just a nice to have. Yeah, and you really don't if you're a Home Assistant user. But if you again, if you want to go the route of controlling stuff without the whole infrastructure of managing Home Assistant, you could use HomeKit to do ninety percent of what you need. And then those random cheap devices that are quote unquote smart devices that are not HomeKit compatible, you could you could run Homebridge on your Mac or on on a Raspberry Pi or on a Windows box or a Linux box and you could you could get that other 10%. And it does a bunch of neat stuff that Apple's probably never going to really do, you know, as any community builds on. So there's some other advantages to Homebridge. It's not necessary unless you want to support non-HomeKit compatible devices.
0: Okay, well thanks for clearing that up. The uh The the terminology here is so confusing, you know, HomeKit and Home Bridge and Home Assistant, and it's kind of hard to keep all this stuff straight in your head when you're fresh to it. Why don't we come back to that in just a second?
2: Alex was touching on a bunch of the terminology here, but Chris, it sounds like you've put a bunch of links in the show notes.
1: Link Ninja, and I didn't overdo it. I just tried to put the best of the best in there that helps you go through it all with screenshots and stuff like that. So if you're trying to set this up for yourself or like a family member, hopefully those will work as a resource. But Alex, I think what you really need to kind of wrap your head around is connecting HomeKit and Home Assistant. You've got such an established Home Assistant setup now that I don't really think it's worth like developing and, I guess, cultivating your HomeKit devices. Because you're essentially going to replace them with everything that's in Home Assistant when you connect it. And so every device that is in Home Assistant will now show up to your iPhone as a HomeKit device. So you connect the devices to Home Assistant, and then they show up on the iPhone. And so that means non-HomeKit devices show up, obviously. That also means things like your automations and your scripts and those types of things, even camera feeds, now also show up as HomeKit devices. Camera feeds? Yeah. It depends on the camera, of course, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's
0: pretty cool. So I've just right now installed the HomeKit integration. And I now have about 20 different devices asking me to scan a QR code and add them to the home app.
1: Yeah. That's why I'm saying, like, it's kind of easier to just, I had to just take a weekend and because I was all in ho- on HomeKit and I just had to move them all over, if I recall. Although, read on it because it's been so long since I've done it that they may have changed the way it works now. But then future devices, now I just add them directly to Home
0: Assistant. All right. So, live listeners, I am going through the process of adding a camera into the home app i have added the home kit integration now i'm going through my notifications and adding by scanning a qr code in the home app on ios i'm adding an uncertified accessory and i get a great big warning telling me it's not secure as i do it it's now connecting to the camera which is in the kitchen what's that kitchen hub i don't even have a camera in the kitchen
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll try to guess. Yeah. It will try oh, to continue. guess. Let's continue. Okay, blue iris, all cameras. Camera that you know of. I mean, let's be honest, Brent and I have both been in there. There's a few cameras you don't know about. Oh, it's my driveway, not my kitchen. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> hey? Yeah. Now, what's nice is all your devices on your iCloud account and your family devices can get access to those. So Catherine could have all of those devices on her iPhone. And my kids, like when they're at the RV, have access to those devices on their iPad. So they can read or be in bed at night and they can just grab their iPad and turn the lighting off when they're done now, which has been great because they just discovered that on their own and I didn't even have to like tell them about it. And they have also the tablets, but now they have it right there on the device that they already have. So why not have that additional integration?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It, it For me, answers some of the biggest questions I had actually, and I've deliberately left all of this research to do, it's kind of live on air, live on the episode to make it more exciting or something. I don't know. It answers some questions that I had about how to actually integrate this stuff. But uh, when we were talking the other day, you suggested that um, I might need an Apple TV. And I know we touched on the iPad and and things like that as like a home hub. Why, Why would I need that? Is that for the kind of relay thing that you were
1: mentioning? Yeah. So the Apple TV can act as that hub and it will do a fine job because it's powered on all the time and you'll probably have it plugged into ethernet so it's actually a really good device for that and um they have a low power mode for it and everything like that and there's even some information when you go into the settings screen you can see like uh, what its status is as far as your home kit hub goes and when you put it on your network you plug it in if that's the first device you have that's if you don't like say already have a home pod It'll just sort of negotiate, and it'll become the leader automatically. You'll never know. You never really have to futz. It just does it. Now, I've just tried to add my robot vacuum, and it tried to pick that up
0: as a camera for some reason. Uh, I think because of the map portion that the uh, Xiaomi RoboVac thing that I have, Roborock S5 is the one I have. And it's trying to use that map as a camera, and it's just failing and spinning. And So this isn't perfect by any stretch, but I can certainly see why this would be useful.
1: What I would do for some of those devices is just disable them in HomeKit because, like, so say you have like my sensors that have six different sensor feeds. Each one of those will show up as a device in HomeKit. The humidity, like all of it just shows up as a device. And some of it, there isn't like a parallel. There's nothing in the Apple world that equates to that kind of device. And so I just disable those. So it basically, it's like a one time curation where I go through and I just. I take some stuff out. There's a couple of different ways you can do that. I don't remember the best way, but I found it online by looking and I, I just went through one time and disabled everything that I didn't want in that home kit screen once. And it's been great. But yeah, there is edge cases like, like um a device that has two camera feeds and stuff like that. But I think Apple only expects devices to have one single camera and those kinds of weird edge cases. But when you're looking for like controlling smart devices or lights Or kicking off automations or scripts, it's great at that kind of stuff. Um, But it doesn't fully replace going to the Home Assistant web UI or app if you're, you know, even a moderate power user. I don't think it helps either that my other
0: primary HomeKit kind of ecosystem, the Philips Hue stuff, I recently replaced that with a ConBee 2 Zigbee bridge and Zigbee buttons everywhere. So, you know, the the couple of low-hanging fruit that I had that would have worked now don't work because I've kind of taken that control back in house.
1: But as connect if you do connect HomeKit up all to Home Assistant, then those will show up. Those will be devices as buttons you can use uh in HomeKit. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so then that means also your iPad gets that, uh your watch, and any of your Siri tubes get that. And I think the Siri tubes actually make for kind of a nice home automation voice control. It's a decent compromise. I think it's a, a, it's not a perfect privacy story but it's clearly better than google and better than amazon yep
0: I, i'm i'd be lying if i said that wasn't part of my motivation to switch for a bit
1: and i like that their protocol is land based it's not api cloud based it's land based now the voice translation that, that siri does is cloud based although Apple does seem to be moving to doing that on chip more and more. They do that in the latest iPhone. So it's conceivable future HomePods may do local transcription. So that that part still goes to the cloud. But once Siri realizes what you're asking for, that happens on the LAN. That happens immediately. It's faster than some of the other ones because of that. So another question I have for you. Uh,
0: with the Nebu Casa cloud service, I can connect the Google and Amazon Pucks. Tubes, whatever voice assistants, to you know react to various phrases, uh, and I can program those. You know, with Google, for example, you do it in the Google Home app. Uh, I can create key phrases that trigger certain scripts in Home
1: Assistant, that kind of thing. What's the equivalent in the uh, HomeKit world? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked because I should make this point. You don't need Nabucasa Cloud or any of that to have HomeKit and Siri work together and have Siri trigger all the HomeKit stuff. Um because it's doing it through the HomeKit integration and Siri is executing those commands from the from the hub device or whatever Siri device requests it directly to the Home Assistant using that integration. So it bypasses the need for like the complicated setup to get Google Assistant to work completely. So also, I think it's just a great setup because you don't actually need the Nebucosa cloud part. You don't have to do all the cloud stuff if you don't want to. Uh, so you just get the HomeKit integration set up. And once you have uh, all the HomeKit devices associated with Home Assistant, it Siri just works. Your phone, it'll work on your phone. It'll work on your HomePod. It'll work on your watch. It'll work on your Apple TV. It all just it happens immediately.
0: Very nice. And we're going to take a quick break from the Apple stuff. We'll come back to that shortly. Uh, I have a request to ask of our listenership. Um, My mother sent me a few videotapes for Christmas. They are mini DV format tapes. Uh, I rang a local video shop that does like digital or analog to digital conversions. uh, And they wanted to charge me something like $20 a tape. And I've got about 10 or 20 of these things to digitize. Uh, That seems a little bit expensive to me uh, also what seems expensive is looking on ebay at these used camcorders they're like 100 150 for a 10 15 year old outdated proprietary format camcorder so i was wondering if there's anybody in the audience that has any suggestions about how i could acquire a mini dv camcorder for cheaper than 150 dollars, or would be willing to loan me one for a few weeks that'd be kind of cool and uh, if you have any suggestions about how to actually go ahead and digitize the uh, tapes properly, please let us know at self hosted at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Hey, Chris, I've got good news. The NVIDIA Shield, our favorite video player, has been updated to Android TV 11. It has a Stadia button now. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> no, I mean, it's apparently according to 95 Google. Yeah.
1: Oh, boy. And they didn't get rid of the ads either. I went and looked for a screenshot. It Still has no, the ads no. on the interface. That home, that kind of home launcher thing is—it's uh, all money, baby. You know, I don't know what is going on, but I was trying to watch Deadwood, and I have the Nvidia Shield in the bedroom, and I don't—I don't watch TV back there a lot. But I, you know, I was gonna—I was just for whatever reason we were watching TV back there that night, and I hit play and I start watching it, and about five minutes in, it starts buffering. I'm thinking, what the hell's going on here? So I pull up the Raspberry Pi on, you know, SSH on my phone in my bed like a like a lazy bastard. And uh, I pull up Htop and sure enough Plex is chugging away transcoding. And so I go get the information in the playback and it says that the audio codec is unsupported. And so it's transcoding the entire thing even the video because the audio codec whatever it is, I I, I don't know, is unsupported on the shield, but shockingly, it doesn't have to transcode it for playback on the Apple TV. So I can't imagine what codec the Apple TV has that the NVIDIA Shield doesn't. But uh, I kind of designed my Plex setup to never transcode because I'm doing it on a Pi that's doing like a thousand other things. <laughs> so once it starts transcoding, all bets are off. You know, that TV watching session gets wrecked. <laughs> I think the NVIDIA Shield, we did an episode on it a long time ago,
0: but it is the single longest running piece of hardware in my entire house near enough. I think I've got a Unify access point and NVIDIA Shield that all date from 2014, 15, something like that. And I haven't replaced or upgraded either of them.
2: It's like the Android
0: LTS. Right? I think it helps that it's the same chip that they used in the Nintendo Switch, though.
1: Yeah, and and a couple of uh, NVIDIA devices they sold to OEMs, too. So I'm sure they still have engineers working on drivers and getting Linux running on there. So, I'm yeah, I'm keeping mine for now... But I am tempted to replace it because of this codec issue, although it really hasn't been a problem in the past. So So what would you replace it with, Mr. Apple iOS boy? Well, what do you think? I actually think the Apple TV is pretty decent, especially if you only buy these things every four or five years. Um, And they don't update it very often, so they last about five years. The performance is better than even the Nvidia Shield, and that really is saying something. This isn't supposed to be an exhaustive comparison between the Apple TV
0: and NVIDIA Shield. Perhaps we'll save that for a future episode. But there's a couple of things before I buy one that make me worry a little bit about doing so, um, potentially. Uh, number one is, uh, I'll list my use cases and then perhaps you can address them.
1: Are you talking about the Apple
0: TV or the Shield? Uh, so I'm, I'm talking about use cases I have on the Shield that I'm worried oh. I won't be able to replicate on the Apple TV. Gotcha. First of all is iPlayer. So obviously living in the States and being British, we like to get real TV uh, from the BBC. And the way we do that is we have a WireGuard VPN that goes into one of my parents' houses in England and our IP address is a residential IP. So so far as the BBC are concerned, we can just stream iPlayer as if we were in that building Uh, and there's no problems there. Whereas if you were trying to use several commercial VPNs or host something up on Linode or DigitalOcean or, and other cloud provider that IP block is kind of blacklisted by the BBC. I've also heard stories that they blacklist certain models of Roku's from listeners. Um so, you know, you've got to be really careful about the devices you try and do this on apparently. So that's number 1 is how am I going to get a WireGuard tunnel on an Apple TV back to England? And then the second one is something like Kodi so cody as i'm sure most of our listeners know is is like the jack of all trades like if it won't play in cody it's a broken file type video player um so for me those two things you know plex and jellyfin i'm assuming are both
1: absolutely fine on the apple tv yeah those the, those are fine yeah the those are both really good questions um i don't really have an answer for you on the WireGuard VPN other than solving that at the network layer, Uh, which I could imagine a couple of tricky ways to do that, but no particularly great ways to do that. Uh, But I could imagine a routing situation where you're taking care of that at your firewall or at at some other device. Um, That's the only way I could think of it. I think you'd probably want to go that route because it's not unheard of to have people root the apple tv and install third-party apps that's been more common on the apple tv than it is on other ios devices but i don't really find that to be a good long-term way to go because eventually apple releases an os that breaks it every time Mm -hmm. like you used to be able to to your second question there was a period of time where you could make an apple tv a hell of a cody box it was awesome um but Time moved on. Apple updated the hardware and the OS requirements, and that ability went away. And uh, I have replaced Kodi with Infuse. I've mentioned it before on the show. I think Infuse is the best set-top television-style interface to video playback. It's got the best codec support. It supports Samba shares. It supports SFTP. It supports syncing to Plex and Jellyfin. It supports DLNA. It supports just attaching a disk and watching files locally. It's got tons of codecs. It has a super active development team. And, uh, you know, all respect to the Plex team, they're just focused on making a great video player. And, you know, they don't necessarily need to own the back end. If you want to, you know, roll it with a file system, they'll go that way. If you want to sync it to a Plex server or Jellyfin, they'll go that way. And so Infuse, for me, I even subscribed to the pro version because I think it's absolutely worth it. And um, I took about a year off from Cody. And, man, I tell you what, I, I used to be one of Cody's biggest fans. You can find really embarrassing old videos of me on YouTube uh, where I'm really advocating Cody. Actually, man, you can even find videos of me advocating XBMC before it became Cody. Like, it's the, 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 the loyalty runs deep.
0: I think there are videos of you advocating how to run XBMC on a PlayStation 3. Yeah. Running Linux back in the day.
1: Do you remember DLP televisions? The ones with the, like, reverse projectors? Oh, that yeah, were really- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! It was 720p, baby. And we were happy, goddammit. It, we, yeah, it was. Uh, it was great. But I took a year off from Cody, and then I went back to it uh, last month. And, oh, my God, I realized it's just from another era. Like, I think if you have momentum with it, it's fantastic. But if you take a year off and then come back to it, we don't design software this way anymore. And it does all this crazy stuff. And it has, it is, it's a lot. And Infuse, it seems simple at first. It's deceptively simple. But as you begin to use it, you realize it's very powerful. And it has a fantastic video playback engine, too which is, you know, job 1 here. And it's great at jumping around. The just only downside, but if you're a Jellyfin user, you're used to this, but if you're a Plex user, I think the only downside is that it doesn't have skip intro, which I love. But they do not yet support skip intro. I think it's on the roadmap. It does have a feature that Plex needs to have and that is it blurs spoilers. So when you go into a when you go into a show and you look at a season, it blurs the episodes you haven't watched yet. And I can't tell you how great that is. Whilst you
0: were talking just then, I've actually gone ahead and installed it on the Mac that I'm recording this on and connected up my Plex library within, what, two minutes? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty impressive. It's it's doing something now where it's processing my files or something like that, but uh, I've got a 4K HEVC 10-bit test file that I know is uh,
1: of a very, very high codec and it just played instantly
0: on my Mac. So.
1: If you turn on the iCloud sync settings, you can then go install it on your Apple TV and all of those directories and stuff will be there on the Apple TV immediately. Uh, it may have to do some scanning, but it's, it's nice like that. And th- the thing about the Apple TV is the Apple processors have been really good CPUs for, what, five years now? And so even though it doesn't have the latest processor, it's still just about better than anything else that's shipping in any other set-top box. And that includes power use. It's a low-power device, too. So it takes less power when I'm running on solar than the Shield does, which, you know, not a big difference at these devices, but I'll take every little gain I can get. Marginal gains, Chris, marginal gains. <laughs> marginal gains matter in the solar business.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do. Well, whilst we're on the topic of media servers, I know we talked about Jellyfin a couple of episodes ago, uh, mentioned it on LUP as well, I think. And Brent, I know you've been building a Jellyfin box for your family. How's that been going?
2: Yeah, I finally dove in. I, I I think I ran out of excuses to try Docker, try my hand at Docker, and uh Jellyfin was a nice excuse to do that. I have to say, I think it's the beginning of a new era for me, which is very exciting. I mean you guys are old hand at this, but um but Jellyfin itself, I think I've been really impressed. It's the first time I really try to run a centralized media solution. And in my situation, uh my brother's in one home and about 90 steps away, I'm, I'm in another cabin and we kind of watch movies back and forth a lot. Um, but we share a network, which is kind of neat. Um, so I'm able to kind of optimize this thing while they're sitting there watching TV, which is kind of fun. But it just opened up a whole new world of possibility for me. I, I have always wanted to be able to, I don't know, sit at the dining room table and be able to put on my favorite album or change to, well, I feel like jazz now. And I can see Jellyfin being able to do that because you can sort of tell it to play the music on a different device. And these are maybe features that I should have had in my life a long time ago. Like perhaps you two are just laughing at me because I'm late to the game here. But, um, but it's, it sounds and feels really transformative, really. Well, I'll tell you, I'm
0: curious because I know that we've shared Plex service with you for some time now. So you're pretty well familiar with Plex and how it feels and how it operates and its feature sets. How does it feel as a long-time user of Plex switching over to Jellyfin?
2: Yeah, I think I'm I'm looking at it from a bit of a different perspective now because now I'm kind of administering Jellyfin, which I've never done with Plex, but as a pure user um and and I will say I have much more experience with Plex in that regard. Um it doesn't seem quite as polished but i could see that it's starting to get there like occasionally i mean i'm 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 now using my and you know the jellyfin app on my android phone to browse the interface and then sort of send that to the tv right so i'm doing things i never did with plex but occasionally that connection just kind of drops down like the the tv portion of it will just kind of Give a black screen and the interface just goes away. So there's I can definitely see some glitches that I've pretty much never experienced with Plex, I'll say.
1: Well, inevitably this is what usually leads someone to just get a set top box that connect to their TV and you just have a Plex client or a Jellyfin client on that device. And uh, you know, that's why Alex and I think about this a lot, because you just want that to be a really nice experience. When you're sitting down, like we were sitting down to watch a movie, and uh we were all hyped. It'd been a couple of nights. we have been talking about it. We finally sat down to watch the movie. I hit play and I had a file error. And I was able to resolve it quickly. I, I figured out what was wrong pretty quick. It probably took us about five minutes. But that is it's so like disruptive because you got you got a whole night going. It kills the momentum of the entire night for a good five minutes. And um, that's a best case scenario. You know,
2: that's a best case scenario, five minutes. I think it's by far the time of day you want to least be doing this kind of troubleshooting.
1: Right. That's how I ultimately ended up going with just Apple TV and Infuse. But I like that you're going down this route. I'm actually kind of more excited that you're playing with Docker. I think that's going to be really great, too, because that's going to open you up to a world of trying all kinds of apps. And those skills will work on any Linux box. If it's a, a laptop, a server. Or, you know, a VPS machine, it's the same commands and tools to install software on all of them. That sounds really nice.
2: And I think it's also going to be a huge paradigm shift. You've both talked about how the day you kind of wrapped your head around Docker, your whole idea of how to run computers changed. And I'm really just starting that journey.
1: For me, it was as an old IT guy that was doing this for, for, you know, for years before we even had anything like containers. I mean... FreeBSD had jails, but for me it was finally a, a real solution to separate my application from my data. That had always been something that I thought the lines blurred too much when I would set up a home server. And with, with containers, and Docker I think is the most widely used container technology. With containers, I, I I finally had a really solid, reproducible way where I could blow away the application. I could completely destroy the container, pull down a fresh one. If the config was all the same in my Docker compose, it just reconnects everything, It starts right back up, and that was the day I was like, "Oh man, this means I can, I can finally move an application and its data around. I can, I can pick it. I can pick a, pick all the data up off of one server, drop it on a new server, take that Docker compose file, pull down the image, and it reconnects like it was always been running on that box. It just fires right up, and it, it makes disaster recovery such a thing of beauty." And it makes actually being able to move off of a box so much easier. So when you need to grow and expand down the road, it's so much simpler.
2: You know, I was giving this also as a gift to my brother's wife because she loves watching videos and stuff. And we don't have the greatest internet connection, as you know. And uh, so I've been ripping all of her favorite DVDs. She has just boxes of them. And so this was a nice gift to give. But the morning, Christmas morning, I thought, okay, I had stayed up late, you know, putting a bunch of stuff on there, make sure everything works. And that morning for whatever reason, it, the interface on Jellyfin just stopped working. I couldn't, I couldn't access it. I couldn't do anything. And I uh, thought, that's brutal. oh, this is hard syncing. And I think Christmas morning is maybe not the time to be troubleshooting, but what I ended up doing was just, okay, I'm going to start from scratch. It wasn't that hard to kind of build this thing. So I'm just going to um, delete the container and, and start it over again. And I had that aha moment that you just described, which was brought the container up and then everything was identical to the way I had left it, except it was now working. And that was the light bulb moment where I was like, oh, not only have I rescued my Christmas gift, but this is amazing. <laughs> and it just then made me realize, OK, I'm I got to do this everywhere. There's there's no way that I don't want to be playing much much more with this i do have a few questions for each of you though i was constantly wanting to use the tools that i've had for many years to try to interact somehow with like for troubleshooting i was like okay this thing's not working anymore how do i troubleshoot this thing and i know it's a whole world but any like beginner tips on how to interact with these containers and how to make them easy i guess
0: Right. I have a web page over at perfectmediaserver.com, of course, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, which will hopefully take you through all of the basics of my ethos on why you should be thinking about using containers. Largely, it's a regurgitation of what Brent's just said. Uh, But then throughout the rest of the page, it talks about things like Docker Compose, where you get your containers from and why and how do you pick one over another and what about podman and all those kinds of things um so if you have a bunch of questions i would direct you to that page
1: i'll just say quickly just to help you get your head around it like you got to realize that its own contained environment so if you want to execute a command in there or something like that you have to use the docker command line tools to execute the command inside that container the other thing that's kind of nice about Docker Compose, well, there's a lot of ways to do this, but I think Docker Compose is probably the best way for a new beginner, is when you launch an app with Docker Compose, you can do Docker Compose up. And if you don't tell it to otherwise, it'll give you the output on the screen. And you can sit there and watch the log output. Oh, that actually sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's logs. Really, the the key to your answer is you want logs. So however you have it, whatever tool you're using, you just want to be able to get to the logs. That's
2: really what I wanted. And I had, I had no idea how to get to it. So I I, I just kind of nuked the whole thing. And, and yet that gave me exactly what I was looking for. So I don't think that'll be the case every time. But um, in this case, it worked nicely. There is an alias that I
0: use, uh, which I created a long, long time ago called detail, literally detail, slammed together as one word. Um and for me what that does is it prints out the last fifty lines, it tails the last 50 lines of a container's standard output. So oh, that's nice. One thing you'll run into with, with containers is that not every app logs to standard out by default. And so sometimes you'll look at the logs for that container and you won't see anything in the logs. So you might need to, for that particular application, enable things like debug or error logging um, or, or higher modes, sorry, than error logging, you know, more than warning or info, at those kind of things. You need to turn it up to the highest chattiness that it has in the logs. Uh, some containers, that will drive your potty. Other containers, it's uh, the bare minimum. Uh, traffic's a good example of where they don't put enough <laughs> stuff in the logs that they should. Um yeah. We've mentioned it on the show before, but there's a tool called Dozzle, which will put your containers logs into a browser, and then you can search through the containers running on a specific box and look at the logs in a browser, uh, if you want to do it that way as well.
1: Well, before we go, I should mention we're doing a meetup at the end of January here at the studio, January 30th. It's a Sunday. We'll do a live recording of Linux Unplugged, and then it's a hang and chow. I have a birthday around there, so it's kind of a half-birthday celebration, but I'm not making a big deal about that because I don't want people to think it's a birthday thing. I did buy some
2: bubbly for you that I hid in the fridge. Really? So there'll have to be a That's you know a birthday pop of the cork on that one.
1: Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. If you're in the Pacific Northwest or you want to fly in on your private jet, we do have an airport nearby. You can go there. <laughs> <laughs> Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for that. Also, thank you to our subscribers self sre you get some bonus content. You get a post show, and it's ad-free. So thank you for supporting us. And we do have the new network membership, jupiter.party. If you want to support for about the cost of two shows, you want to support the whole network, you get all the shows. Plus, you get Linux Action News ad-free. It's the only way to do that at jupiter.party. I'm really sorry, Chris, but I won't be able to fly into my
0: private jet for your birthday party.
1: That's all right. I, I... I understand. We should really fly to you. I mean, you're the one with the newborn. so And the weather. It's
0: really our fault. I do. You know, you're up in the frozen tundra up in the north. You know, it's, uh, it's
1: vaguely <laughs> warm down here at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's rough here in Seattle. We're known for our rough winters, that's for sure. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback on uh, content ideas, things we talked about today, great apps that you're running on your network, something you just self-hosted recently, feedback on the show or sponsors. All of it, self slash contact.
0: And thanks for listening, everybody. That was self slash 62.
1: So I did my first drive shucking. I, 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 I even went as far as doing the bend the pin off and just rip it off the drive route. You've popped your chuck cherry. You have been shucked
0: for <laughs> yes. the very first time like a virgin. <laughs>
1: I needed space. We were scouring every dead rig around here, looking in every box, and I could find like SAS drives. And I could find everything except for I needed at least two terabytes because I minute. don't know.
0: Hold your yeah. horses there, boy. Uh huh. Didn't what? we shuck that drive at the sprint in 2019? We just left it there and never used it. Oh, you're an animal, Chris. I know, I know, I know. You know,
1: I
2: actually just before we left the sprint, I stashed it in one of the drawers here because I knew it would just get <laughs> lost in the in the whole shuffle. And so we, Chris and I, I don't know, we sat there for minutes and minutes thinking, where do we get a hard drive? And we all started looking around and forgot that there was this drive in this drawer. And all of a sudden, I had that light bulb moment. I thought. Oh, the sprint. I bet you Chris didn't even know that thing was in that drawer. So I You're went and like grabbed You're like a squirrel
1: and... putting nuts away yep, for winter. He did.
2: I'm fine with that. So
1: then we were looking at like, people online were suggesting putting a piece of tape over the, the pin, you know, yeah.
2: the, 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 the... Not just any tape, Chris. Kept yeah. on tape.
1: But then we're like, somebody was like, if you can get something under, there, you can bend it off. I'm like, that's the route I'm going. I knew immediately that was the route I was going, and that's... it was so easy. And so I pop it in the I popped it in there, and it's working great. And now uh, it's off to the races, running basically 24 seven. I won't let these guys turn it off because now it's a Bitcoin node, and it's synced the oh, blockchain. God. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So, and it's it's even worse than that. We turned it into a lightning node, too, so we can get lightning payments and things like that and do lightning invoicing.
2: Isn't it a node for a third?
1: Comp- yeah. Yeah. Also, Cordana as well. Yeah. Why not? I'm, I'm just playing around. I just like the, something has always fascinated me about worldwide computer networks. I've always liked that. I used to do SETI. You know, I loved that. I don't know what that is. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, maybe it's only a U.S. thing search for extraterrestrial intelligence yeah oh and it was a screensaver that would download information and then like radio signals and do like awesome processing there's also of course folding at home and other ones and i used to do that as well uh and so i've always liked it um and i like the concept of decentralized security so that's why i'm playing around with the node to see what it's like and um there's a project out there called umbral which you can run on a Raspberry Pi or you can build it like on an Ubuntu box. And it's all Docker containers and whatnot. And they also have an app store that lets you install things like Home Assistant and Sync Thing and VS Code Server. You know, like a lot of these things now that let you just install a bunch of the really popular self-hosting apps. It's got a quote unquote app store for that. And then it's got a bunch of Bitcoin specific stuff as well. It's interesting. They did a pretty good job, I have to say. And it's, it's a pretty... Sane Plumbing. It's NGINX on the front end, and then they have a managing Docker's, like much like Home Assistant supervisor setup, where one container can orchestrate the others.
2: I was really impressed that it just went so smoothly. Really, I think we didn't have that much issue bringing it up other after we found a hard drive. Yeah,
1: hardest part was finding the hard drive. Right. Yeah, and it was kind of neat because we had this old Dell sitting around that uh, is from the Vista years. That's how old it is, and it's too nice to throw away because it's it's a nice metal case. It's got a, it's got one Xeon processor. It's got ECC RAM. It's all really high-end. It's like a high-end Dell workstation from back in the day. And uh, it was contributed to us by a listener. And it needed a job, I felt like. And so now it's doing this.
2: I, I recall one issue we did run into was that um, your logs were just getting sort of clobbered with floppy disk errors.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what were we, what distro were we installing? Was that, that was, uh, CentOS, wasn't it? I, th- I think so. CentOS just had a fit that there was a floppy disk, but there was no, there was a floppy disk drive, but there was no disk in there. And so it just kept airing out. <laughs> <laughs> it actually, it may have been Ubuntu. Because I think maybe. you you, okay. you kind of yeah. I'm not sure. I think the only one that didn't do that was Suse. Maybe it might have been both of them. I think it's a kernel thing. It just shows you that we try them all yeah. for, the, for this. <laughs> yeah, it was.
2: It, it's been a lot of fun though. I've seen you be giddy in a way that I haven't seen you be giddy in a while. I think you, you embarrass you kinda, me.
1: Come on, <laughs> describe, embarrassing. Well, you did describe
2: how it. It's sort of akin to when you first
1: discovered Linux. Yeah, it does feel like that a little bit. Come on, don't embarrass me now. Come on. You know, that's I got the you, you know, you saw me feeling the nostalgias up there for the uh for the good old days. But yeah, it's been fun and it it was like a whole self-hosting little adventure that I didn't plan on. But uh, you know, again, having that experience with managing Docker and all of that when I saw what was going on under the hood, I was like, "Oh, yeah, I recognize this. It's a Unix system."
2: So Alex, when will you bring up your node?
1: Yeah, but why don't you be a lightning node, and we'll send each other lightning payments. Shit, let's do it right now. Uh, (laughs) All right, go get Umbral. 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 How do I spell Umbral?
2: Like an umbrella, just real short. Oh, okay. Can I run it as a container?
1: Yeah, what I would recommend is they have a setup script, so I would probably do it on, like, an Ubuntu VM, and then just let it take over your Docker system.
0: Or I could buy the all-new aluminum Umbral server with a 1.8-inch
1: OLED display. That That's does true. It does look
0: kind of cool, doesn't it? I mean,
1: if you were like- I already like them because they spell aluminum correctly. <laughs> if you were like a real Bitcoin bro, you know, and you had your millions in Bitcoin, you might drop 500 points on it. You know, whatever. I need to download Umbral OS for my Raspberry
0: Pi, okay, yeah, and then etch. Or build and- your own. So you Can't build just your download
1: own- a- Container yeah. coming up. Oh, okay. There's a Linux button. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. You got to do that process. And again, I there. This is I tried this on a couple of different distros, and it works the best, it seems, on Ubuntu, because I think they just make fundamental assumptions about the system. But there's not, like, one container you get. You got to run their little script, and then that's why I think it's probably best on an Ubuntu VM. And then you'll need probably about a terabyte of free space. Right now, mine's using just under 600 gigs, but they recommend a terabyte. You can probably swing that. Umbral, right. I'm going to call it Umbral.
0: Uh,
2: there you go. Umbral, yeah, it'll take me a little while to install Ubuntu, I guess. But. And then after that, you'll need about eight really late nights to try to wrap your head around all, all, all of the oh my God. what's going on in this so, thing.
1: So I know you don't really care, but it is. So the reason why we looked into this is because the podcast index people are looking at a way to make it so that way listeners can send lightning payments to podcasts as they're listening. Sort of like a system to replace Patreon or, uh, you know, those kinds of membership systems. And if you run your own Lightning node, you can essentially get payments for near free. Um, and they're instant fricking And it all rides on top of Bitcoin, but it doesn't. Anyways, that doesn't matter. But uh, so the idea is there's a couple of apps out there. Brett and I played with a couple of them. Uh, I played with Castomatic. And what was the one you?
2: I was playing with Fountain, which I thought. Fountain. Yeah, I also tried Fountain. Actually pretty nice. So
1: this means that listeners can now fund
0: your DoorDash habit in real time, huh?
1: Sure. Actually, I've, I've given up on the DoorDash and the Uber Eats, I have to say.
2: He just brings me over and solves those problems. Oh, but yeah, anyways,
1: okay. so as they're listening, it can, stream, it can stream Satoshis to the Lightning Node, is essentially, and they'll- you Sorry, can, what's a Satoshi? <laughs> I know. That's why, see, you did this, this Brent. Begins, you did this. to the rabbit hole. A Satoshi is a fraction of a Bitcoin. How much of a fraction? A lot a bitcoin a, a bitcoin I can think? be subdivided 100 million times so a lot <laughs> Okay. so you can send less than a penny over the lightning network so you can do really really micro transactions so you could send you could donate 25 cents uh, you could donate you know whatever it's, like 2000
2: satoshis for instance is 0.85 us dollars
1: yeah so it's um if you ever hear stories about uh like so such and such country is using bitcoin because their currency collapsed That's what they're doing is they're really using tiny, tiny fractions of Bitcoin. They're not buying Bitcoin at $47,000 or whatever. They're buying tiny $5 fractions of Bitcoin. And so they needed a way to process these transactions cheaply. And so that's how the Lightning Network was developed. And so it's a peer-to-peer network. And so I'm connected with a couple other people out there. And we act as relays on the Lightning Network for payments. And it's it's instantaneous and it's cheap. And uh, you can send it anywhere in the world. And the Strike app and the Cash app just announced that they've, Cash just announced today that they're integrating Lightning payments. So there you go.
0: Well, I'm installing Ubuntu right now. Might be a few minutes, but uh, I'll give it a go. I'll I'll
1: spin one up. Off to the races. (laughs) You're going to become a Bitcoin node. You're going to secure the network, Alex.